Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media, nor middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I'm an associate clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University. I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Drs. Imran Niazi and Kelly Holt. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes reviews really help others find out about Chiropractic Science, so if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. Here's a review from Rich Manley, D.C., who says, Excellent podcast. Thanks, Dr. Dean, for continually providing informative and interesting content with lots of doctors doing important research. You're doing the chiropractic profession a great service. Well, thanks, Dr. Manley, for your review, and I look forward to sharing your iTunes reviews to all of you who are out there in a future podcast. Please consider making a contribution to Chiropractic Science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website either by making a donation or by purchasing the evidence-based patient education slides presentation at chiropracticscience.com. All right, on to the podcast. Imran Khan Niazi received his BS degree in electrical engineering from Rifa University, International University, Islamabad, Pakistan in 2005, and his master's in biomedical engineering from the University of Lübeck, Lübeck, Germany in 2009. Later, he got his PhD under the supervision of Professor Dario Farina from Center of Sensory Motor Interaction, Health Science Technology Department, University of Alberg. Alberg, Germany in 2012. After working as a postdoc for a year, he moved to New Zealand in 2013, where he is currently working as senior research fellow at New Zealand College of Chiropractic. He has an adjunct position at Alberg University, Denmark, and Auckland University of Technology, New Zealand. He is interested in studying and understanding the altered mechanism of motor control and learning in neurological disorders to develop various technologies that can enhance the quality of life of these patients. He has successfully co-supervised four PhD and 31 master's theses and currently has four active PhD students. He has authored 46 peer-reviewed journal articles and 82 conference papers, His work has been cited more than 1,100 times, and he has an H-index of 16, according to Google Scholar. Over the last 10 years, he has received funding worth around U.S. $1.5 million from various sources. He is currently working as a review editor for Frontiers in Robotics and AI, and reviewer for more than 25 engineering and neuroscience journals. Dr. Kelly Holt was a member of the 1998 inaugural graduating class of the New Zealand College of Chiropractic. Besides his chiropractic degree, he also holds a Bachelor of Science majoring in Physiology and a PhD in Health Science from the University of Auckland. His PhD focused on the effects of chiropractic care on sensory motor function and falls risk in older adults. He has published work in a number of peer-reviewed journals that investigated the effects of chiropractic care on nervous system function and the reliability of vertebral subluxation indicators, and has won a number of international research awards. 
Kelly worked in private practice as a chiropractor for 10 years following graduation and has taught at the New Zealand College of Chiropractic since 2000 and is currently the Dean of Research at the college. Kelly was named Chiropractor of the Year by the New Zealand College of Chiropractic Alumni Association in 2012 and by the New Zealand Chiropractors Association in 2014. Doctors Niazi and Holt, thanks so much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Great to be chatting today, Dean. Thanks for having us, Dean. Absolutely. Well, I'm really excited to have you both on. Uh, first, uh, we'll get started with how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor, Kelly. Well, that really came from going to visit a chiropractor when I was probably about 10 years old. Um, I had a lot of headaches as a kid. My mum dragged me along to a chiropractor and funnily enough, it helped me with my headaches. So I, I got under regular care. I was going for a number of years. Then when I was finishing high school, I wasn't really sure about what I wanted to do. And my chiropractor said, well, why don't you become a chiropractor? Because we've got a, we've got a college opening here in New Zealand next year. And he seemed to have a lot of fun. He obviously helped people because he helped me. So I thought I'd give it a go. And um, the rest is history. Fantastic. Imran, how did you get to work with chiropractors? As you introduced uh, uh, in your introduction, you said that um, I did my PhD in Allbrook. So during my PhD, uh, which was which started in 2009, and I finished in 2012, in between somewhere, I think 2010 or 11, uh, Heidi Harvick and Professor Benedict Murphy uh, visited uh, Allbrook University. They both had a friend slash colleague uh, who was uh, my mentor, uh, um, in my PhD, Dr. Natalie. Um, so they were visiting her and uh, they were doing a collaborative project. So, uh, and the lab they were using uh, was a lab where I used to spend most of my time during my PhD. Um, and that was a near office lab where we used to have a very specialized um, uh, equipment for some uh, spinal reflexes, measuring spinal reflexes and other near office measures. So I was helping Heidi and Benedict Murphy for that collaborative project. So that's how I got introduced um, to, uh, you can say, chiropractic research. And then from there on, because we spent, there was two to three weeks which Heidi and Benedict stayed in Allbrook. And during that time, um, I think Heidi and Benny both, uh, more so Heidi is uh, friendly nature which initially attracted me, uh, uh, and then... Benedict's not friendly, is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, no ben, Benny is, she's a <laughs> classic, uh, <laughs> in a classic, like, she's a scholar, like, you know, a classic scholar like, type, whereas Heidi is <laughs> a bit more fun. And <laughs> so, uh, so that's, yeah, that was my introduction to chiropractic, uh, um, to be honest, to the the world of chiropractic, before that I didn't knew even a profession existed. <laughs> uh, um, initially, so that was my introduction to chiropractic, and then during our talks during those two to three weeks, um, uh, some of the measures which uh, I was using during my PhD uh, to look at uh, spinal reflexes and then uh, some of the cortical responses, uh, we were trying to figure out, uh, trying to look what kind of changes can occur pre and post of certain interventions. So now those were the discussion I had with both uh, Heidi and Benedict, which resulted, oh, well, 
why not let's apply those uh, um, those measures for chiropractic care and see how chiropractic uh, uh, care affects central nervous system. So those were the initial um, talks. And then uh, Heidi uh, used New Zealand <laughs> as a bait <laughs> to attract me to her uh, lab. New Zealand is, as we all know, that is an attractive, um, uh, attractive place to be uh, as a tourist to begin with. Uh, so yeah, um, those talks uh, kind of morphed into um, some rough ideas around the project and uh, she invited me and then I visited New Zealand during my uh, PhD in 2011 for the first time. Then uh, at the end of my stay, um, uh, what happened is um, uh, there's a group of master students uh, which I was supervising at the time. They came down to New Zealand and that's how that was the beginning of it. And then it was a continuation for next couple of years, 2012, I came back, another group of students came with another group of students in 2013 again. And then 2013, I think, uh, yeah, I moved, uh, uh, I was looking for a new adventure in my life. Heidi had a position. So that's how I ended up at New Zealand College of Chiropractic. So Imran, uh, we were talking uh, before we start recording and one of the things that you mentioned was when you first uh, saw the effects of chiropractic on some of these neurophysiological measures that you had already been investigating, uh, it kind of caught you by surprise. Can you just speak for a moment about what you saw? Yeah, so <clears throat> so as I said earlier, when Bernie and um, Heidi were visiting us, um, so the normal paradigm we uh, use, uh, what we say now, pragmatic design of chiropractic care, where you record a measure and then um, chiropractor uh, gives a single session of chiropractic care to a participant and then you measure post recording. So um, in the lab, um, I've been using those uh, measures for past two years for my PhD, um, looking at the neuroplasticity uh, um, uh, uh, of central nervous system at the spinal level. It's called a stretch reflex. So that's what we've been using to uh, tease out uh, if an intervention have an um, uh, effect on the central nervous system, where it comes from. Is it cortical in nature or is it spinal in nature? So that particular um, um, test, um, if you see changes uh, in those kind of leads towards, yep, the, if the changes are, uh, you see changes in that particular test, it leads to, yep, the changes are happening at the spinal level. So normally uh, what I was, uh, I have experienced uh, at that particular time for past two years was you see single digit changes, if you see ever any changes for that matter. Whereas uh, working with Heidi and um, and Bernadette, like uh, for each and every subject, the changes were in double figures, for example, to begin with. And then someone, some, I, I remember if, if my memory serves me well, we had a participant who changed, um, whose pre to post changes were about more than 100%, like it doubled uh, that. So, and uh, that was really, um, 
at the beginning i kept that amazement to myself and i was just questioning myself is something wrong in the equipment i have done something wrong because that was not a unique uh, uh, that is not the norm or you know because after working with certain techniques you get so accustomed to looking at the computer and those squiggly lines as some people call them <laughs> uh, so you um, so those uh, those changes were massive and and once i figured it out that um, i tried my best like looking all the equipment is working properly uh, then i opened up slightly with heidi and benedet and asked you mind explaining this witchcraft to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, i don't see much happening yes <laughs> you guys putting your hands on spines and yeah and pardon me at that particular time that was my understanding and um uh yeah doing few uh, adjustments of the spine or certain spinal segments and what's happening so yeah so that was quite freaky slash <laughs> um like a jaw dropping moment like okay that can happen as well so and that created the interest as well like those were the uh ice breaking moments with uh, me being just a lab assistant for Heidi and uh, uh and uh, Benedict at the time um i think once we opened up um, both ways um and it was Heidi was always probing me but i was more of on a shy side so but once i opened up uh, with them that was the start uh, of our discussions yeah fantastic really like to hear that uh Kelly how did you initially get involved in research well really it came from my time at college when I was a student so that was back in the the mid 90s um because one of my first teachers was Bernadette Murphy who Imran was talking about who is an an amazing scientist and um you know inspirational lady and she she taught us research methods and in our course at the time we had quite a large research component and i really enjoyed doing the research study that i did back in college and um, so you know that was the very beginning uh, then i got into private practice and was also giving back to the college working in the the chiropractic center uh, and got dragged into a bit of teaching and one of my other colleagues uh, at the time randy beck he dragged me into a project he was doing and you know we were doing this on saturday mornings and in the evenings it was just a bit of a hobby but again i quite enjoyed it so started dabbling a little bit in research and then heidi came on board at the college in 2006 and we really got things moving and she she dragged me kicking and screaming into this um research career and and um pushed me to do a phd and for the last 10 years i've been full time in research at the college Well, wow, fantastic. Uh you both have published uh some fascinating articles in top journals such as Scientific Reports, Brain Sciences, Experimental Brain Research, European Journal of Applied Physiology and and many others and today what I'd like to do is talk about four of these articles and to discuss some important concepts such as neuroplasticity, falls and sensory motor performance in particular. And the first paper is one about falls risk and this is called the effectiveness of chiropractic care to improve sensory motor function associated with falls risk in older people and this was a randomized controlled trial 
Could you give us an overview of the article, uh, how it came about, and, and what results did you find? Uh, well, this really came from my PhD, and my PhD focused on falls risk, almost sensory motor function associated with falls risk in older people uh, and whether chiropractic care has an impact on it. You know, we know, we know that falls are a major problem, major public health issue. You know, they, they cost society an awful lot of money, billions and billions of dollars in rehab costs and uh, you know, hospital costs, people being out of work, and lead to a lot of mortality as well. So you know, they're a, a very big issue. They impact on many families and lots of lives. And it made sense to me that if someone had issues with postural stability, that they'd be at more risk of falling. And if chiropractic care had an impact on nervous system function, then potentially that might uh, influence someone's falls risk. If, if the nervous system was functioning better, maybe they were going to be at less risk of falling. So I wanted to investigate that in my PhD. And uh, this trial you're talking about was the main RCT that I did in my PhD. So what we did with that is looked at 12 weeks of chiropractic care and a parallel group RCT. And the outcome measures that we were focused on were sensory motor uh, function changes associated with falls risk. So th this was things like uh, joint position sense in the ankle. Uh, another one we did was called the choice stepping reaction time, which is basically a measure that um, tries to recreate a, a compensatory step. So if you imagine that you're having a trip or a slip and you need to put your, your foot out quickly to stop yourself from going over, uh, the, the choice step and reaction time is all about how quickly you can put that foot out um, as if you're doing a compensatory step. Uh, something else we looked at was called the sound-induced flash illusion. And this was a bit of a left field outcome measure, but this is looking at multi-sensory integration. Um, so we know with uh, as, as we get older, some of our senses start to go downhill a little, and the way that we combine sensory information and, and turn it into a, a good representation of what's going on in our internal and external environment, the, the strategies and the ways that we do that changes. And uh, what we know from, from some previous research is people who struggle to combine these different sensory modalities, they seem to be at more risk of falling. Um, so the sound-induced flash illusion, it's all about the way that you combine audio and visual information and try to make sense of it. Uh, and I thought I'd throw that in there, even though it seems a little bit weird because it doesn't have an awful lot to do with the spine, but we thought if, if we have some sort of influence on sensory perception with chiropractic care, then, then maybe that will show up in this sound-induced flash illusion. Uh, we also looked at postural stability, so you know, postural sway, uh, and quality of life. And we did uh, a 12-week trial, so 12 weeks of chiropractic care or 12 weeks of usual care. Looked at uh, baseline, then four weeks and 12 weeks with these outcome measures, and uh, we really wanted to see what was going to change with those. And I've got to say, as I was getting towards the end of this trial, I had no idea what to expect. I'd put a number of years into this, and I was preparing myself for a negative trial. Now, we hadn't looked at any of the results. Um, I thought, well, you know, maybe I've just wasted a number of years, and nothing's going to come out of this. And then I started getting these letters from the patients in the trial 
and you know they actually did send letters in those days, which was quite surprising. <laughs> but the letters were telling me about all of these amazing changes that had gone on in their lives that had nothing to do with falls risk, um, but they were thanking me for enrolling them in the trial and getting them under 12 weeks of chiropractic care. And th these were weird and wonderful things like, um, remember one lady, uh, she got her ability to swallow back. So she, for, for many, many years, she had just been eating pureed food because she couldn't swallow anything that was chunky. And what she found very soon after starting the trial was that, um, that her ability to swallow came back and she could get back on a regular diet, which was just weird. And, uh, you know, th this was one of many letters that I got. So as, as we're getting to the end of the trial, I thought even if it is negative, uh, we've actually made a difference to these people's lives, which was really quite cool. Uh, but thankfully, when the results came through, we saw lots of changes in these outcome measures. And so we saw an, an improvement in proprioception and ankle joint position sense. Uh, we saw a uh, improvement in the choice step and reaction time, so they could you know, take a step quicker, compensatory step. Uh, we even saw a difference in the sound-induced flash illusion. So chiropractic care seemed to alter multisensory integration, uh, which was the first time I think anyone had showed that. And uh, we saw a change in quality of life, the physical component of quality of life. So we, we had some really cool changes that came out of the study, um, and I was really happy when, when those all came through. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. Was there anything out of the trial after you got the results that really kind of surprised you at all? Well, probably one of the, the biggies was the sound-induced flash illusion because uh, in, in previous research, no one had shown that it changes. You know, it's a pretty robust outcome measure, um, and it, it's supposed to stay constant. It's a very reliable measure, and we saw quite a big change in that. So that one blew me away. And the other biggie was actually this choice, step, and reaction time because uh, what we found between baseline and four weeks, there was no real change at all. So chiropractic group and the control group, neither of them changed. But then between the four- and 12-week assessment, there was this very big improvement in the chiropractic group while the control group remained static. So you know that, that was kind of a biggie to me seeing that sometimes we see changes in uh, function that, that take longer than just a few weeks. Because, you know, if, if you're in practice, you get someone under care and not much changes in the short term, I think often what we want to do is dismiss them from care um, because we don't think it's working. But, um, you know, with this choice, step and reaction time, that just highlighted to me that, you know, sometimes these changes take time. Yeah, that's a great point. Um because a lot of the guidelines recommend, you know, uh, five or six visits. If you're, if you're not seeing any noticeable change, then, you know, the suggestion seems to be, well, let them go. Uh, but this, this research is fascinating that we may not see some of these changes initially and, and it may take some time. Yeah, that was, that was the biggie for me. And it's something that I try and share with our students is, yeah, we see miracles in practice all the time, and we see people change very, very quickly. Um, just because you don't see that straight away, don't necessarily think that it's not working. 
um, you know, it, it doesn't justify seeing someone forever and making no, no difference with them, but just be open to the idea that some things take time. Yeah, yeah, very good. Are you planning any further studies uh, to look at fall risk in the elderly? About once a year, I consider <laughs> doing a, a large-scale RCT. And um, then when I think about the resources that it will take, uh, financial and human resources, uh, I tend to bump it back a year. <laughs> so I'd love to do it one day. Um, but just with, with our group, we're a fairly small group, and we, we tend to have 30 or 40 projects on the go at any one time. And I'm just thinking if we do a, a large clinical trial like that, that's really going to suck our resources dry. So I'd love to do it one day, but um, I've, I've just recently bumped it back another year. <laughs> yeah, I, I, know, I know the feeling <laughs> for sure. <laughs> well, the, the next uh, three studies that I'd like to talk about, they all involve the same methodology, but three different populations. Uh, before we get into these studies, I'd really like it if you could um, talk about some of the uh, core concepts uh, dealing with these methods. In particular, there are a few neurophysiological techniques that you're using, uh, H-reflexes, for example, V-waves, M-waves. Uh, if you could give us an idea of how you might go about measuring these things and, and what the heck do they tell us? <laughs> yep. Uh, so, uh, Dean, as um, I said earlier, um, when I met for the first time uh, Heidi and Benedict uh, in Allbrook, uh, these were the, so these, the very first study we will talk a bit uh, down the track um, is the out of that uh, in, um, initial discussion we had uh, in Allberg, or that was the founding uh, foundation stone for that uh, particular project. Um, later down the track, uh, uh, Professor Kemal Turka, um, who's now uh, settled in uh, back in his home country of Turkey, who has spent about twenty or thirty, no, twenty-eight years in University of Adelaide. Mm, he got involved. Uh, that's a story in itself. <laughs> How we roped him in. <laughs> uh, that Heidi says that yeah, that's a work of five years of constantly showing up to different conferences and talking to these big wigs and you know picking out their brains uh, around these methods. Um, so uh, uh, let's get into so uh, so. Uh, Let's take edge reflex for that, Maria. So when we look at any intervention and we, uh, what in a basic science paradigm or in a neuroscience, we are uh, most of the time are interested. If you see a change uh, because of any intervention, then then uh, it's good to have a change. Then um, next thing you are interested in is where the change is originating from. Is it cortical in nature or is it at spinal nature? So um, as biomedical engineer, I was once told, uh, think of it as an algebraic problem. So A plus B equal to C. So A is your, let's say, cort cortical input, B is your spinal input, and C is the total output. So it's good to have a change in a, your uh, total output, but we are interested in what contribution is, uh, what um, portion of... Um, Changes are coming from where, where they are originating from, because that uh, that's um, uh, 
that explains uh, uh, underlying mechanism further, for example. So H reflex, which is a analogous of a spinal, uh, a, a stretch reflex, which is a mechanical one. So you could replicate um, uh, H uh, stretch reflex in uh, electrically in human uh, uh, in human participants, oh, you could do uh, in uh, with, uh, you can do the, that test with um, human participants as well. But you need a, a very sophisticated machinery to um, evoke stretch reflexes uh, because you have to stretch uh, uh, the particular joint at a certain speed and uh, with a certain velocity and all that. So if you do not have access to that particular um, uh, equipment, then another equivalent test is what we call edge reflex, which is uh, you could evoke. Um, and how you do that, you stimulate the mixed nerve of a particular muscle you are um, interested in. Um, you uh, place um, surface elect uh, EMG electrodes um, uh, on that particular muscle. And then uh, what you start um, the nerve which is innervating that muscle, you start stimul electrically stimulating that. And um, what happens in a, uh, when you st stimulate, there is a spinal reflex. So um, uh, in the lower motor uh, neuron parts of, of that uh, area, the electrical stimulation is given. Uh, it goes back to your, it completes a small loop. Uh, it goes back up to your uh, spine and come back to the muscle. So there's a small uh, circuitry which it gets evoked. And you measure that uh, through your uh, surface elect uh, EMG electrode which you have placed over the muscle. So you record that. And if you keep increasing the intensity of your um, electrical stimulation, uh, there's two phenomena called dromic and antidromic uh, uh, effects. So uh, the, the uh, and once the dromic effect is gone and the antidromic overtakes uh, that phenomena, so what you are getting is purely the uh, drive which has been coming from the cortical region uh, or from the cortex, it's believed. Um, there is slight controversy in the literature that uh, the origin of these changes are purely cortical or there are other supraspinal mechanisms who are, which are involved in that. But there is a generally, there is a consensus uh, uh, that it is a representation of your cortical drive. So that's how you do your V waves. And if you uh, combine uh, V wave, uh, edge reflex, V wave, and then you add in force measure, like uh, calculating how much force is produced uh, uh, by a particular muscle, uh, um, uh, then uh, combining the information gathered from all these three measures, you could talk about uh, okay now what's uh, what's happening in the uh, spinal circuitry or in general what's happening at the central nervous system and not only you could look at the changes but also you could speculate or you could make some uh, inferences where those changes are coming from so uh, so next three studies which we will be talking about contain uh, uh, use the same methodology actually reflexes v waves uh, and the force. Um, and the thing uh, is, again, the basic question here is, uh, does chiropractic have a neuroplastic effect? Uh, and before we go on and explaining these things, just want to, uh, the, the definition, I got often seen that, what is a neuroplastic change? So the, the definition, typical definition is 
uh, if there is a change in the central nervous system and it outlasts the uh, its session that's when you can call an intervention that it have a neuroplastic effect for example if a session happens for a half an hour and you can measure at the beginning and then at the end there the change still persisted uh, then you can say there is a neuroplastic uh, effect so uh, so that's our starting point so the first question is does it have a neuroplastic effect N- number 2 if there is an effect is it cortically driven or is it spinally driven h reflex tells would uh, tell us about uh, the spinal nature of a change and v wave combined with the force measures would tell us about um the cortical nature of the um of the changes neuroplastic changes uh and uh, and another common factor in all these three studies is the study design um i would say uh, um it's um, from chiropractic point of view it's quite pragmatic um from neurophysiology's point of view it have it's a crossover design where you measure pre post you know, of an intervention and inter, um, uh, which is in our particular case is chiropractic care and in the crossover uh, uh, section uh, session they would receive uh, the control session and in control session normally uh, um, uh, what we do um, is i think kelly can speak more what we specifically do in con- it's really just a passive movement Mo- control yeah. so we run through really a chiropractic exam moving them around in the way that we would when we're going to adjust them and then we set them up um maybe side posture maybe supine prone as if we were going to adjust them but put in no thrust so we're trying to take into account the the time that's involved the touch and also you know probably the vestibular changes that yeah. come with getting people up and down and, and those sorts of things yeah so these are the um so you get uh, that as uh, in an intervention center you get the full pragmatic uh, uh, uh chiropractic care or the what Kelly just explained as a control so you may hear pre post um in one session in uh, intervention one session as control and then um and another aspect which we uh, i think uh, i have now recently seen gets highlighted a lot um is around the contextual factors as well like uh, or um and one thing i would like to uh, tell to our listeners is uh, in any uh, good training of neuroscience methodology it's part and parcel uh, or it's considered you know, uh, it's it's part of our dna that we are taught uh, these um, things like in experimental condition has to remain very similar except the particular intervention you are changing so uh, in our case how the clinical interaction of uh, how chiropractor um, interact with the participant in one session is or uh, it remains same how uh, he or she would interact with the participant in a control session uh, for example um what uh, and in uh, and so this is another aspect which i would like our listener to uh, keep in mind sometimes we do not uh, or in uh, not sometimes in past we haven't emphasized it when we have published these papers so uh, the very first paper we will talk about haven't been mentioned before but that was something we have uh, we always t- take care but now in our recent articles we have 
started to um, um, write, put it in writing in the papers as well to put it ease uh, some of these criticism we uh, sometimes often raised at these studies as well. So coming back, um, so yeah, so you record it pre post, um, and then you look at uh, what's happening. So I think that sets you up for nicely for these three studies and. Uh, should we move forward? So yeah. let's talk about the first study. So yep. the first study yep. was um, what we call um, a subclinical population. Um, and before uh, I move further, you know, in if you think of um, any disease, there is a spectrum. So it's not that someone overnight um, transition from um, a healthy uh, a human being to full-blown pathologized, uh, pathologically uh, uh, patient, for example. So how we see at uh, our research center is there is this spectrum. So you have these very healthy people, then you, what we call, there's another group, what we call subclinical. It's a, um, a thing which have um, exist in neuroscience and other literature as well. So these are not, these are the people who have, some issues, ongoing issues, but they have not sought any care for that particular problem. So it comes and goes. Um, it it feels like it it, it resolves itself um, itself in a few days or a few hours, depending what condition it is. But these are the people early people earlier on the spectrum, and then you go on acute and then chronic. Uh, a full-blown pathological model of the patient. So this first study was done in this specific group, what we call subclinical group, uh, and they, uh, so that was num uh, so that's the thing about that group. And then there is another rationale, on, and which we often get criticized for as well is we don't use um, a pain population, for example, in our studies to look at the because that's what chiropractic is mostly known for, that chiropractic affects uh, pain. So why don't you look at the mechanisms in those populations? But one thing we often forget is pain in itself is a big confounding factor. Uh, so the thing about uh, subclinical or the niche about the subclinical population is these are the people who have the similar sim um, symptomology as uh, far as uh, physiology is concerned, but when we are recording on the day, they don't have pain because if you have a pain uh, and if you see changes in the pain, which we very well know the chiropractic care helps a lot, um, just changing the uh, pain would change all these neurophysiology. Then you are not sure what are you after. Um, it, was the change because of the chiropractic care or was it just because the pain has reduced so that's why you are seeing changes in these basic um, uh, in these neurophysiologies for example so to tease out uh, that level of detail we deliberately choose um, uh, this subclinical population so the day when we are testing them they are not in pain um, so if you see any change in the neurophysiologies we could um, uh, we can uh, infer that the changes are because of the chiropractic care, not just because now pain is reduced and when pain is reduced, you are seeing those uh, changes. So in this first study, uh, th uh, that was, uh, uh, we uh, we made this H-reflex and V-wave and we had the force measures as well. Um, 
as I've explained to you before, pre and post uh, um, uh, design. In, uh, in our chiropractic care or our intervention group, what we saw uh, a change in uh, force, which we measured both with um, EMG, which is not the best of the measures, um, uh, using EMG as a measuring the force, uh, but um, but we accompanied that with the uh, force transducer as well. So we were measuring how the force is produced in the muscle as well. So but while uh, we were uh, subjects were doing the, these maximal contractions, um, we were measuring the EMG as well, uh, as well as their torque or the Newton they were producing through the uh, load cells to measure the absolute force, if I can call it. Um, another niche thing about these all three studies is um, the methodology to do H reflex, um, uh, and that's where um, um, I would like to bring in the contribution of Professor Kemal Kirker uh, I mentioned earlier, because H reflex is a very sensitive measure. Um, uh, as a, a, our listener, and you can recall, I said how you evoke H reflexes, you electrically stimulate the mixed nerve innervating the muscle. Depending on your uh, um, joint position or how you are uh, uh, putting, uh, orientating or posturing your muscle, um, that uh, nerve, mixed nerve uh, position changes. And the, once its position changes, uh, the, uh, it changes the H, um, it changes the output of the H reflex as well. It, you could see a nice uh, H reflex at a certain angle. Let's take an example of a soleus muscle, for example. At a ninety degree, if you um, are sitting like as you sit in your chair and you know your thighs and your um, uh, and your chin muscles, they are at ninety uh, degree. Uh, you evoke it. Uh, but let's now stretch our legs straight, for example, and then use the same intensity. You will not get the same output of the edge reflex. So it's hard, very sensitive measure. So the, Professor Kemal Turkey, back in his days in the University of Adelaide, um, with some of the pioneering uh, of the of this uh, field, uh, people like David Burke, and um, uh, they have developed this methodology how to reliably uh, evoke edge reflexes. And uh, before that, it used to be done just at one intensity, whereas in the methodology which Professor Kemal and his colleagues developed, which is it's an input-output curve, which means you not only stimulate uh, uh, at a thresh, uh, at a uh, motor threshold, which is uh, M wave, but you stimulate at sub-thresholds and are also at the um, uh, um, at, uh, also at uh, above uh, super threshold as well. So you get the whole picture and you get this S like if uh, if you have the paper in front of you, you, you would see there is this um, S figure or what we call sigmoidal figure. So you, uh, you, you look at the lowest possible intensity and you, uh, and your one thirty percent of your MX and you divide it into 16 different steps. And at each step, you give three different stimuli. So that by using this methodology, uh, you are very sure that in that particular uh, uh, session, uh, what you are capturing is the true representative of the um, spinal circuitry of that particular participant uh, at that particular moment. 
And the nice beauty about uh, this methodology is what I earlier told you, like if you change your change your uh, posture or change the position of how your uh, muscle is orientated, uh, irrespective, even we still keep it similar, but even if it has changed, the beauty with this method is uh, you could replicate in that process. So that's why it, um, uh, we, when Heidi invited me for the first time in 2011, that was the study we did here. Uh, Professor Kemal also came from Turkey uh, at the time. So he was in the lab um, making sure what we were doing uh, is, um, is too representative of his work, which he has amassed over last 10, 15 years of his, uh, or 20 years of his research, for example. So th that's some of the uh, thought processes which have gone um, in the very first studies and then which have um, uh, continued in the second and third study we will be discussing. Okay, great. What uh, what specifically did you find in that first study uh, regards to the H reflex and M wave? So and as it, um, again, um, uh, if as I said that. Um, the methodology we use to evoke edge reflex is this input-output curve or sigmoidal curve or in a very layman's term, it's like a S-shaped curve. So what you do, you evoke it at a pre-session, uh, uh, like before your intervention or control session, and then you evoke um, the similar uh, edge reflex uh, phenomena post-session. And what you do, you superimpose um, these two lines over each other and look at what are the differences. Uh, so we know from previous neuroscience literature uh, that if you uh, see the, the different phases of this S shape like uh, curve represent different states of our, um, of our uh, central nervous system or the, what it represents, for example. So what we observed is, um, uh, there was a, a slight shift towards the left, which means our lower uh, uh, threshold motor units, uh, um, uh, the excite net excitability of that have changed. So that if you see that um, shift from pre to post towards, um, towards left, that's what it indicates. So we found a significant change at the uh, lower uh, or that beginning part of the curve. So that was the changes we observed in the H reflex. In the force uh, uh, or uh, or in the V, v waves, we showed, uh, I think it was about 45% change, uh, uh, if, I'm, if my memory serves me well, uh, in our control uh, group or in our intervention group. And whereas in the, uh, in the control group, this V wave have gone down twenty three or twenty four percent. So, so it's a it it is moving in completely opposite direction. In intervention session, it is increasing by forty four percent or forty five percent, whereas in control group, it is going down in a negative direction about twenty four uh, percent. So that was a highly significant uh, 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 change which we observed. And also what we uh, uh, looked at the force and with, if you look at force production by EMG, and I, as I tell, it's not the best of the measure, but still um, 
some uh, to that we saw 60% changes but when we look at the absolute force changes it was about 16% changes uh, in our in, uh, intervention group and whereas similar phenomena happen in the absolute force that the control group went in opposite direction mean it decreased by about 12% so summarizing in h reflex we saw a shift towards the left v wave we saw um, uh, 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 v and uh, forces we saw a uh, percentage increase in a positive direction whereas in the control group we saw uh, a decrease in the v wave in a negative uh, di- direction uh, for control group so and and that's why at the beginning i took a bit of time to explain those three major so on its own these three things tells you a snippet or something but you cannot be confident about claiming um something uh, some uh, changes but when you put these three jigsaw puzzle uh, or mayes together and then try to make a sense of it what it tells definitely we do see a neuroplastic change in the central nervous system the second is where the origin of this uh, change comes uh, from is based on b waves we it can it's very rarely it happens that a myel can be a purely cortically driven or a purely spinally driven um, our results shows it's mainly cortically driven when we combine the results of v wave with force absolute force myels if we take out the force myels some um, then it it can be controversial but we have shown that v wave alongside the for absolute force myels um, we can say yep uh, it more contribution was coming from the uh, cortical origins that was all good so that was the main um, main parameters we were after but then also because we were recording emg we were just interested in another major um, which is fatigue uh, and fatigue um, uh, you could, electrophysiologically one way of measuring in a particular muscle is looking at the median frequency of your um, emg so in normal cases a non fatigue muscle's median frequency is in the range of 150 or to 200 so somewhere between 120 to 200 it now if you record emg at uh, high intensity um, contraction levels you would see the median frequency to be somewhere around um, um, yeah between 120 and 200 hertz if a muscle starts to get fatigue you would see the shift of this median frequency towards left meaning reducing and if it reduces below 50 hertz then it is um, it's a quite acceptable uh, in neuroscience literature and basic motor control literature as well that um, it is true representative of muscle being fully fatigued what we uh, when we did this kind of a if i can call it a secondary like that was not our primary measure but uh, when we look at that measure we did see shift um, so we didn't see the change in the median frequency in our intervention group whereas in our control group we did see that um, this median frequency moved towards left meaning starting to be fatigued and that explains why we saw increase uh, a decrease in the force production or uh, of, um, uh, in the control group so yeah so these were the few outcomes uh, um, yeah parameters we uh, um we we made it and that's what they showed. Well, that's great and I appreciate you going through uh those explanations. I know that's going to help a lot of people to try to understand uh these studies. 
So the next study was done uh, in a group of athletes. Uh, can you tell us, uh, now that we have the methodology down, can you tell us what the principal findings were of that study? So, um, before, so when we finished the first study, one thing I will just uh, briefly like to mention, Kemal Tukir, and that is one of those, you know, moments uh, um, as a scientist, uh, you are looking for uh, when we finally did the whole analysis. And keep in mind, again, uh, something uh, we couldn't um, uh, put in writing, but that was part of the, it was all done blindly. I was the guy who did an uh, uh, analysis uh, of that and I was blinded to the grouping for example but after uh, being in lab for two weeks and uh, uh, because we were in New Zealand for only a month's time so we had to do the whole project and th during that point when we finally got the results and Kemal uh, said oh so Kemal is also um, a bit slight segue here is uh, when he finally came to New Zealand and he saw us, okay, so you guys just uh, gently, <laughs> tell, uh, you you are nice to people. So that's his thing towards uh, to Heidi or to chiropractor because you are nice. That's why you see these changes. There is no physiological truth to that because he's one of the very old school skeptical guy, hard to convince and unless you show him um, real hard data, for example. So that's why he flew uh, all the way from Turkey to to New Zealand to make sure <laughs> things are done properly. And if his name is on the paper, he wanted to make sure that you know he was there and he could fully rely on that thing. So he uh, he said one line. Uh, oh, so if you, when you do your thing, uh, so you see changes in the, or um, uh, you see the uh, changes in the net excitability of low uh, threshold motor, uh, low threshold motor units. So if that's the case, you should guys should test it in people who have pathologies, people like stroke. And Heidi had a big laugh at that point. I said. And and I hope people understand that Kemal is who is not chiropractor. He doesn't understand at that time. Even even I was naive that why Heidi was laughing. It's then she explained that there is a connotation of chiropractic care and stroke uh, at that time. That rather than looking as an intervention to help stroke, you guys are blamed for causing it. And so the Heidi almost got the, her microphone and said, "Can you say it again?" And recorded that. So. That's the genesis of the next two studies. Uh, so from there, once that results got published, uh, that gave us the motivation. Okay, it's good to have it in a subclinical population, but uh, would we find uh, similar changes in a full, uh, as I said uh, at the beginning of my explanation, in the spectrum of health, uh, you have the subclinical uh, and then you have full pathology. So that's the genesis of the stroke study. But in between came a uh, uh, graduate student, uh, uh, a student from Denmark uh, uh, who wanted to visit us um, um, and do a research project. And in this project, um, so, but he was in, interested in athletes. So that was um, how this came into being. And the results of that study was, so we conducted a similar methodology in um, uh, elite taekwondo players. Uh, and when I say elite, I think uh, most of them had minimum four gold medals uh, in uh, at international uh, at world competition levels so, so these were really high elite uh, uh, elite taekwondo athletes what we did we made the same uh, pre post 
post and this time we don't uh, didn't record it in only at the post but we went even further we recorded at post 30 minutes of cessation of the uh, uh, intervention and also at one hour point as well again you know as you you see or we often get oh, um, you see these immediate changes how long they last so this is the genuine question and that's why we were interested not um, not only looking at the immediate changes but also at 30 minutes and one hour again um, what we saw a massive increase in v-wave uh, i think our uh, v-wave uh, in this particular um, uh, so we saw a similar trend that v-wave alongside the absolute force measures increased in our intervention group whereas in our control group uh, uh, it decreased uh, the v-wave slash the absolute force went uh, down in a negative direction uh, we didn't see any changes in the edge reflex in this particular uh, population. Um, so, um, so that was an uh, interesting finding. Uh, what we um, found out that even in these elite athletes, we had uh, changed um, their uh, absolute force, I think on roughly around 8%, if I recall well. Yeah. Um, which is, it's not huge when you look at just from a, uh, number of terms, but think of these are, uh, as I was trying to emphasize the fact that these are elite athletes. For them, there there is a phenomenon in neuroscience or in generally in motor control literature, what you call ceiling effect. They're already at their peaks, for example. So to, in, uh, to consistently see a change of uh, that uh, level of change, that was quite uh, um, um, uh, quite amazing to see. Uh, and that's just on the basis of one session of spinal uh, of one session of chiropractic care so yeah so that pretty much repeated um, the results of the previous study but this time in an elite athlete groups and also the changes lasted not only immediately but they lasted post 30 and post 60 unfortunately at post 60 we didn't have statistical significance but they were still Oh, that uh, if you look at the um, slope of the uh, trend, it was increasing. So they were increasing still. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And <clears throat> from a behavioral standpoint, maybe a practical standpoint, uh, do you think uh, athletes who get adjusted at events, let's say, um, do you think that's part of what they're perceiving is this increase in uh, MVC, increase ability to, to perform? Uh, you think that's part of what they're they're getting out of this? Possibly. Um, and then uh, another fact, <laughs> I think, um, uh, and right now as I'm struggling to answer your question, is because of this, the, this very nature of the two sciences, I would like to point to our um, listeners is, is as a basic scientist and what's the difference between a clinical scientist as a basic neuroscience uh, person it's very hard for us to make uh, uh, so um, to be certain about anything and then make certain recommendation our language is quite um, what's the word um, um, uh, non-certain if I can say whereas in clinical term which you are asking me is um, that might be the case that in a um, uh, that would that be the thing? Possibly, yes. 
but I would say we would have to do the clinical stuff, uh, clinical study to confidently say yes. But we do have good evidence from basic science experiments. Yes, uh, we, um, there is a possibility that that might be the case that uh, elite athletes can use uh, chiropractic care before their competition and that might possibly give them a slight edge because in these uh, high level performances, um, the differences of um, uh, winning and losing is microseconds to few <laughs> uh, minutes. So I don't know if Kelly wants to comment on that. Yeah, I, I think Imran's being really cagey here because <laughs> you know, definitely the results of the study hint at that and that may be what's going on. What we sometimes find is that people will take the results of our studies and run with them <laughs> and we see on the internet things that we haven't said which are going out to the, the general population which <laughs> um, which we can't back up with what we've done. So, you know, we, we certainly need to do more work there just to see, you know, how clinically relevant these things are. Um, but it most certainly could be that the, these athletes are actually stronger after their adjustment and it does impact their performance. But, um, you know, obviously more work to do there. Sure. And I, I think that actually transitions nicely into our last paper that we're going to talk about. And this does deal with the clinical population of stroke patients. Again, the methods are are the same here. Uh, so what, what did you find in this study? Pretty much the replication of, uh, um, of, uh, of the previous two studies. So we did see, um, ch uh, changes in the V wave and we did see changes in the absolute measures. Um, the mind boggling, oh, again, one of those <laughs> moments was like in this time, uh, keep in mind, these are chronic stroke patients. And I will come back a bit to explain. Um, um, but for now, we saw it in absolute uh, force production. I think we uh, looked, uh, we found about on average about 65% changes uh, in chronic stroke population uh, in, uh, during the intervention session. Whereas in their uh, control session, again, they follow the same path. Uh, they went down uh, significantly with about 27% uh, uh, decrease in their uh, absolute force production. And again, in their V-wave, um, I think we had the similar uh, changes that uh, it increased during the intervention session uh, and uh, decreased uh, in the control uh, session. Okay. So, so we have the similar results. Uh, um, no, no real H reflex change. No, yeah, so no H reflex. So if now we combine the three different studies, so first study in the subclinical uh, sub, uh, population, we did see some changes in H, but the consistent finding in all three studies is changes in the V uh, and absolute force. With, uh, when you combine these two together, leads us to the conclusion the neuroplastic changes are occurring and they are occurring um, mainly cortically driven, um, not to rule out that there are no spinal component, but um, our data suggests the changes are uh, cortically driven and they last uh, up to uh, an hour, um, which leads us um, nicely, uh, gives us nice data if you want to uh, continue uh, on a clinical study. Okay, yeah, great. <clears throat> now, I, I, I want to get into the neuroplastic effects here and, and, uh, some of those issues. But before I forget, I also wanted to ask as you're going through your literature review and writing up the paper for the stroke study, 
Um, did were the same has have the same methods been used in other studies, like to to look at the production of force and the various muscles, and then as a follow up to that, what did they? What have any other previous studies that have used similar methods? Like what what's the intervention effect? How large is the effect from anything like exercise or you know, touching somebody on the leg? Like do we have anything that we can compare it to? Cause these just sound amazing, like huge effects. Uh, so um, from methodological perspective, um, uh, again, uh, um, which I said earlier, the, the methodology for H reflex or V wave, the methodology we use, which is we learned from Professor Kemal Turka is quite um, robust. Um, and uh, now I'm trying to recall. I think uh, we didn't. Um, if there were changes, they were of um, very small. Uh, keep in mind these are single session studies. Most of the time, um, in uh, in stroke population, very rarely um, um, you see a single session studies. But those, not the similar methodologies, uh, but some if I can say the sister or the cousin methodologies, <laughs> uh, they do find some changes, but in in a very moderate um, effect sizes or very small, um, something in range of single digit or um, max at 10% or around 10 to 15%, for example. There was that one study yeah. where they did um, three weeks of oh, exercise yes. training, wasn't it? Yeah, so, uh, so that was, again, um, I think it was effect of, endurance training mm-hmm. i remember it's carolina one of my colleagues from denmark she was the lead author on that and my supervisor diana were involved in that particular paper but i think it was uh, uh, it's a while back but yes yeah, so they looked at the changes in these uh, particular major h and v waves uh, three weeks of um, uh, strength training and or endurance training and uh, the Changes we observed uh, in our uh, population were more the same. First study was was, uh, quite similar. So, but keep in mind this was not in a stroke population. That was in a um, so-called healthy population where they were looking at the effect of uh, strength and endurance training. So, to coming back to your question, um, not that I can recall. Um, any particular study right now, um, but in generally in neuroscience, um, you rarely see a single session intervention um, uh, giving s- such a big uh, uh, amount of changes. Sure, sure, yeah, <clears throat> and that's a really good point to bring out that um, perhaps other studies haven't looked at it. Maybe they should, uh, yeah. based based upon. <laughs> Based upon your study, maybe they should start checking that out. Um, one one thing that I want to come back to, and I think this is a really important thing to discuss, and this is about the uh, the effects, uh, the neuroplastic effects. Um, you know, one thing that uh, I've been in discussions with other people about is. Uh, these neuroplastic effects seem to be short lasting and maybe that's just a consequence of how long we measure them for 30 minutes, 60 minutes, couple of hours afterwards. Um, but 
just because they're short lasting doesn't necessarily mean they're clinically unimportant, does it? Yep. So, um, the, the most of the time, how we encounter is, I think, um, um, and I would lead our listener towards earlier point, which Kelly made uh, during his clinical trial uh, for step response. So, like for first four weeks, he didn't see any changes, for example. But then, the st- changes at the, after four weeks, you started to see the changes. So we can take similar analogy. Um, so, so there are two aspects. One is the clinical explanation of why it's not happening or why is it happening. And then there is a uh, what we call logistical uh, uh, challenges. For example, most of these basic science studies are, the methodologies are very uh, intricate and uh, cumbersome to do. And analysis can take some time, a lot of time. So just for pragmatic uh, logistical reasoning, we, as you have mentioned, we don't record for that long. Um, lack of funding, lack of uh, human resource and um, and keeping in mind uh, having a, a participant in your lab for more than <laughs> two hours session um, bring lots of physiology, uh, psychological changes and that would start intervening with your uh, method. So th- generally there is a consensus in neuroscience that you should not have your participants in the lab for more than at max two hours, for example, because after that they get, you know, lots of different aspects starts to kick in and that starts to becoming a co-founding co- factor in the in that uh, in your my years, for example. So that's from the logistical point of view. From uh, from neurophys uh, point of view, uh, I think uh, that's how. Um, if I look at the things things work that first in basic science or neuroscience literature, find these changes, which are lasting certain period of time. Uh, and when it, the evidence gets accumulated over a period of time, you have done it in different population, that gives you the confidence or let's move, uh, look at uh, this thing into a clinical population, for example, or in a clinical uh, uh, trial. So it's it could be it is, uh, so for us or from our point of view, before we go into a full-blown clinical trial, um, uh, in chiropractic um, research, sometimes one of the um, uh, downside is it's if we are looking at some things. Uh, most uh, sometimes we don't find a lot of data available based on which you could design your clinical studies. So, so these uh, basic science findings help us um, gather some data, gather some basic rationale of how the mechanisms are at work, uh, uh, and then. Um, Based on that, we could uh, design and conduct a larger RCT, for example, or, or clinical trials. Well, I think it will give you uh, some some job security. <laughs> Studying these things for a long time. No, that, that's a neat thing about chiropractic research. There's so much, like you know, it's like uh, just uh, blindly put your finger out there and you still uh, nothing has been done in that particular field for example so uh, so it's it's an amount of uh, uh, the amount of work ahead of us i think we are good for a couple of centuries if it's only <laughs> us who are doing it <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have to have you on uh, maybe in a few years and you can tell us about all the latest findings at that point 
we are I mean, that's a totally different discussion but yeah we are working on how we can work on those aspects um, optimally but yeah kelly so you well i was just going to point out that we we have actually followed up that stroke study with the pilot clinical trial um which we're just going through the data analysis of at the moment so we, we did that original stroke study over in pakistan at a hospital which shows from uh, imran's university where he did his undergraduate degree they they run this hospital and it was a, a very interesting time going over there to, to do the study initially but we went back earlier this year to follow up with a pilot clinical trial where we were looking at four weeks of chiropractic care with um, more sort of functional clinical outcomes so uh, movement related outcomes Fugelmeyer's motor assessment so motor control um, looking at timed up and go then uh, you know re rehab settings and we're just going through the data analysis now so probably shouldn't say too much but um, we've got some really cool results that are going to come out of that study or those studies that we did earlier this year cool i i look forward to to reading those papers for sure when they come out well and this I, point Dean, i would just like to mention one thing one of the few criticism we often i think kelly mentioned that like uh, um lots of people take our research and run with it and uh, often are that's what not we are saying one of the criticism i often see um, was around uh, um, stroke study was again around the contextual factors uh, or the, the uh, fact that it's hard to design a control uh, control um, or a uh, sham uh, session for a chiropractic care because that's a challenge in general for any physically uh, physical uh, therapy so how to design a control session one of the niche thing with this um, control um, uh, uh, cohort in pakistan is in pakistan chiropractic care is non-existent or it doesn't exist so people don't have any perception of uh, what it is so Again, uh, so these guys didn't have, and uh, so for how we uh, dealt with them is two different chiropractic. Uh, uh, so chiropractor would see you two times, and they would use different techniques, and uh, so we were able to not fully, but able to create an um, close to uh, 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 a. A fully complied uh, sham uh, session because uh, at least, and then we also took care of this aspect. Like, you know, often because these people are um, in Pakistan, and then a doctor from foreign country coming and uh, taking care of them. Um, we pay a very good amount of time in designing the protocol in such a way that uh, control groups and the uh, intervention sessions they get similar um, clinical time with the chiropractors or same person of same um, attire uh, so that uh, all those uh, psychological or contextual factors are kept very um, we 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 emphasize a lot on those but it's very hard sometimes put, to put all those things in a when you're writing a journal article and put it out there um, but just I wanted to tell to our listeners is that's always at back of our mind or when we are designing, these are the points where we mull over for long enough to make sure uh, that uh, uh, as much as similar these two sessions can be or those two interventions can be. 
Gotcha. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. And I think it's worthwhile to mention that there's no single study that can do everything. And there's always going to be critiques and you just try to do, you know, the best you can. And, and in future studies, you know, take those critiques and, and try to address. And we all, we all strive to do that for sure. So, but I appreciate you going through that. It's, it's an important comment to make. Um, before we uh, close the call, uh, I ask all of my guests who come on um, one one question, and that is, if you were going to, if, if a student, let's say, asked you how it is they could go about pursuing a research career in chiropractic science and what advice you might have for them, what advice would you have for them? And uh, we could start with either one, either one of you. Uh, I'd suggest that they connect with researchers. So get in touch with some researchers who are doing research that they like and see what opportunities are there to, to work with them. Um, you know, Ultimately, if you, you really want to make a career out of research, you want to be doing a master's degree and a PhD. But if you can hook up with researchers in a lab or, or some sort of research environment, uh, that's the the best first step because they'll be able to point you in the direction of a decent direction to go and potentially help help um, you know, map out a pathway for you to um, to become a researcher. And that could be my personal bias, but um, I often, um, if we are having such chats, I often call, uh, ask chiropractors to be, to go back in, um, like after graduating in um, have a, practice it for a while because once you have done the clinical practice, I think that gives you a different perspective if you straight out of your chiro uh, degree come into research. So that's not that we can enforce that, but uh, often in our discussion, I often bring uh, say to the uh, prospective PhD students uh, that uh, rather than looking at it directly right after your uh, uh, DC or uh, chiropractic degree coming to research as I totally agree with Kelly's point be in touch with them but go out and practice and see uh, in real life and uh, and um, create those um, uh, because once you are in practice lots of clinical uh, relevant questions would come up for example and that would um, start uh, the internal discussion like within yourself how does it work why it works uh, what are the things? So once you have seen that uh, uh, firsthand, uh, I think um, it gives a, a personal touch or a, 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 towards um, a scientific or research project. And, uh, because often in research, what you need is uh, um, is every morning you have to get up and <laughs> be back into the lab. You need a reason. So uh, if you can somehow get that reason and uh, um, different people have would have different but uh, often once you have been in practice and you have seen improvements of stuff that uh, I have um, noticed that that helps people carry through the hard times of research. Research is something it looks very pretty when you have published those five six pages mm-hmm. <laughs> but the amount of uh, sweat and tears have gone in <laughs> before that uh, to go through that process you need are thing which will carry you through those time and believe you me however much support structure you have at the end of the day 
it should be uh, inner calling, uh, which, uh, which should be leading the way. The support system can help you, but at the end of the day, it's you, the person, and the personal reason uh, which makes you get up every day and go to the lab. So, And that's where if you have been in clinical practice and you have seen that, I feel uh, that helps. Uh, that would help chiropractic uh, uh, researchers of the future. And that's my personal bias, fully disclosing that. <laughs> yeah, no, terrific advice. I, I appreciate uh both of your viewpoints and and certainly other researchers have shared that and and I really do like the the idea of getting some practice in before you get into research i I do think it's important um, I still like to practice um, while I do the research and I know many many researchers still do that and um, for me it, it works uh, and like you said, there's a lot of sweat and tears that go into it, just like there are for people who are in practice full time. Uh, yes. It's, you know, that's just the way it goes. But um, if you have that calling and you're interested, there's there's nothing better, it seems. So great. Well, fellas, uh, uh, Imran and Kelly, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for talking about your research. Uh, I've been wanting to, to get you both on for some time. So thanks for spending the time today and telling us about that and, and for this great discussion. Cheers, Dean. Good to chat. Thanks, Dean. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. We'll have you back on, uh, like I say, in a couple of years <laughs> to learn all of the latest and greatest. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of Chiropractic Science with Drs. Imran Niazi and Kelly Holt. Stay tuned for more great episodes.